0: Hello and welcome to The Double Double. My name is David Dixon and it is Friday, September 11th here in New York City. Uh, obviously a very tragic day in the history of this city and the history of this country. So just for anyone who lost a loved one on this really emotional and tragic day 19 years ago, uh, they are still in our thoughts, so in our prayers, and we will never forget Coming up today on the podcast is an interview I recorded earlier this week with the head women's basketball coach at NYU, Coach Meg Barber. It was a really interesting interview. She's had a really interesting career from playing at NYU to how she's back at NYU as the coach. Really enjoyed it. She's also a fellow Brooklynite and my own bias about Brooklyn being the best place on earth. That definitely helped the bond and just I think just help filter a a great conversation between two borough neighbors Uh, so I'm really excited about that so that will be coming up in a quick second here and then a little programming note I'm going to talk about week one of the NFL season after the interview usually I do that stuff before the interview going to change it up a little bit this week going to do it after just because I want to try I just want to see what it's like and it's my podcast I can try what I want to try and We're going to see how it goes. It may last only one episode or it may become a more common thing that that I do. So after the interview, if you want to hear what I have to say about the week one of the NFL, stick around. If not, we're going to hit the music. And when we come back, it's my interview with Coach Meg Barber. I'll hit the music again and then I'll talk about the NFL. Joining me today on the Double Double is a special guest, the head women's basketball coach at NYU, Meg Barber. An upstate New York native, she played her college ball at NYU where she scored 1,200 career points and helped lead the team to two Elite Eight runs in 1999 and 2001. After graduating in 2002, she began her coaching career at Utica College as an assistant with the women's program. She then made the jump up to Division 1, joined the staff at William & Mary in the summer of 2005 where she was key in recruiting three future All-Rookie honorees as well as coaching the post players. After 7 years at William & Mary, she joined the staff at Temple working primarily again with the with the post players. In the summer of 2018, she was named the head women's basketball coach at NYU, her alma mater, and in her 2 years at the helm, she has a 38 and 16 record and and helped the Lady Violets advance to the second round of the NCAA tournament in 2019-2020. I'm thrilled she's taking the time to join me today. Coach, how's it going?
1: It's great, David. Thanks for having me. I appreciate
0: it. For sure. So as we kind of talked about before we started recording, every college in the country is going through an, an unprecedented situation this fall. The fall semester at, at every school around the country looks very different, and it looks not just very different compared to last year, but it looks very different compared to their peer schools. What kind of is the rundown or or the summary of what NYU's plans are for the fall 2020 semester?
1: Yeah, it's definitely the hot topic right now. (laughs) Uh, You know, we're fortunate in that NYU has a lot of resources readily available for all students. And, you know, right now NYU is taking the approach to invite students back to campus regardless of, you know, year. So we have freshmen through seniors and um, we currently have the majority of our team back you know either on or living in off campus housing and taking classes and you know I think right now everybody's trying to do the best they can to follow the rules and and just hope that this continues to be able to have some sort of on campus experience this semester
0: yeah it's it's definitely every school is trying to do their part in giving every student that undergraduate experience that you know the image of college but is looking really different for everyone who just have to adjust. As you said, you're you're adjusting too as you don't have a full roster on campus right now. Just what are the, the plans for NYU women's basketball this fall and just really approaching these fall workouts when, just because I know as as a player in, in the NESCAC, November 1st was like our start date. So everything you do in the summer and fall, it's like, all right, got to be ready for November 1st. Got to be ready for <laughs> November right. 1st. But now it's like, we got to be ready by tomorrow or for fev- February 20th? Like, like how is, how are you approaching the team and, and just how are the girls on the team approaching this fall?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. There's a lot of unknowns and, and uncertainty and, and fortunately, you know, our student athletes are very resilient. So I really, I do think they're taking this one day at a time and, um, our, our sport performance team has done a great job providing, um, you know, just facilitating workouts and, and things that they can do on their own and you know we're hopeful that when we can have some coaching oversight with them you know the NCAAs pushed that up to October 1st this year and so we're just hopeful to get back out on the court in some capacity really just for that connection with our student athletes um, and to give them that time and space on the court that they that they really desire but you know I think for everybody it's about you know being flexible and and really trying to make work with you know whatever we have whether it's a short amount of time or a shortened amount of space or whatever that is and you know we just work within the confines of the rules and and try to make something work
0: and and it's interesting i'm I'm curious for for your experience this past spring and summer because people and I think coaches especially are creatures of of habit in a way all right the season ends hopefully late in March, but <laughs> but the recruiting cycle starts. you kind of know which tournaments you're going to go to and during the live periods, which camps you go to. It's a very set schedule in a traditional year you get ready like you hit the big. Uh, milestone markers in, in each month kind of how have you approached the summer and fall uh, just mentally and just uh, with your coaching staff uh, when when we don't know really when the season can can get up and uh, and going
1: You know, we've um, become great at Zoom. (laughs) We've learned a lot about technology and, you know, we have a a very connected staff. Um, We really enjoy talking basketball, you know, talking recruiting, talking about our team and spending time with our team. So, you know, in a different way, we've done that over Zoom, a lot of team meetings, um, you know, a lot of individual meetings with them. And then, you know, certainly as a staff, just there's been a lot of time for professional development, um, you know, a lot more time to talk basketball and the recruiting has been interesting. It's, I think actually almost doubled the amount of time just because everything is kind of done remotely. And so, you know, you don't get that same in-person feel. And I, and for us, you know, we love that feeling. So, it you know, we'll watch twice as much game film to try to get that feeling of, you know, this this player seems like a good fit for us. And then obviously, um, you know, try to connect with them on Zoom as well and try to get that connection as well. So in some ways, certain things have taken more time. And then, you know, we've also had a lot of time for other things as well.
0: Very interesting. I think a lot of schools are doing that. But let's take us back to the beginning now, before you had to worry about the coronavirus and filling out a roster <laughs> and make sure everyone was ready. I mentioned at the top you're from upstate New York, but where, upstate New York is a very vast place. Where, where exactly did you grow up in, and kind of just how did you first start playing and fall in love with, uh, with basketball?
1: Yeah, if you live in New York City, upstate is like Westchester, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm from near the Albany area, so a couple hours north, um, Hoosick Falls, New York, little shout out, um, and, you know, uh, the first time I had a ball in my hands, I think I really just fell in love, my my dad was my first coach, and he was coaching my older sister, and I just sort of tagged along at practice, and, you know, I just I just loved being on the court, loved being at practice with him, and... Um, just slowly developed into, you know, becoming a, a decent basketball player. I guess so. I was very, very fortunate that my parents really stressed um, my academics and was able to, you know, have an opportunity to go to a place like NYU and, you know, just develop my skills further. And, you know, obviously led me into coaching.
0: So in in high school, we we live now in this period of hyper specialization. I was one of the very, very few kids on my high school basketball team who played multiple sports. Were you a multi-sport athlete in, in high school?
1: Yeah, I played um, field hockey as well all throughout. So, you know, yeah, I know they have all this ball, ball, basketball and all that. And I obviously always had the ball in my hand, but I was really into field hockey and then um, played basketball and then in the spring always picked up AAU. So I was not a spring sport athlete.
0: <laughs> Interesting, But so but so how did playing field hockey help you with basketball in, if, if it didn't? In any way, and, and kind of vice versa, because I know just my own experience, I took things from baseball to help me with basketball and from basketball to help me with baseball.
1: Yeah. You know, I mean, I think everything I, I, I love um, student athletes and recruits that have played different sports, just because as you alluded to, you're working different muscles, you're, you're working different, um, you know, that fast switch and slow twitch muscle. And also just, I had different coaching styles. So I was able to be under a completely different coach who coach a completely different way and kind of learn, you know, that dynamic and, and how to maintain my motivation and drive and then, you know, shift into basketball and, you know, kind of learn things a different way from another coach. So yeah, for sure. it was definitely helpful. It also was a break, you know, a little yeah. bit. Um, so, you know, I just, I loved the outdoor aspect of field hockey and it was just something completely different, um, you know, for me. And then shifting into basketball and really going into that was something just completely different.
0: So, did you have a recruiting process in high school and, and just what was the whole college search process like and, 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 how did you end up choosing NYU?
1: You know, back then I'm dating myself, but we, we had a lot less AAU team. Mm-hmm. So, you know, pretty much everybody on our team, our, our coach was really well connected, um, Doc Galvin, and he did a great job connecting us with coaches and, you know, it was similar to now, you know, they would call and you would go visit and, you know, I was looking at a lot of division one schools and I just never had the, that right feeling for me. And to be honest, when NYU called looking into it, I thought it was a division one school. So (laughs) it really piqued my interest. You know, I think my dad thought this is the last place on earth I would go, um, because I always pictured sort of the perfect campus and quad and, and all of that, you know, in terms of my, you know, ideal campus life and student life. And I came down for a visit. And I really just the moment I slept on campus, I, I felt a different energy. I felt, you know, just that New York City kind of biting at your ankles like, you know, this is a place I could really excel and grow and um, you know, here I am all these years later back back at home. So I guess yeah. it was the right choice.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it I think NYU has the most uh unique recruiting pitch perhaps in the entire country. I remember when I was in high school, uh Coach John who was there when I went on my visit. He, you know, with the tagline of that you live on Fifth Avenue as a freshman because that's where the, the freshman dorms are. And, and as an 18-year-old, you're you're already living on, on Fifth Avenue. What, <laughs> what was it like to just be in college? Because kind of as you mentioned, we, we think of the New England liberal arts colleges as these very picturesque mountains and trees. <laughs> and uh, what was it like being in the middle of, of New York City uh, on Fifth Avenue for college?
1: gosh it's so different you know than any other experience i think that that college students are getting and um you know for me it was just exciting you know and and fortunately i had a coach that really stressed to myself and to my family like you can take a really small bite out of the big apple or you could take a really big bite out of the big apple and you know for me my freshman year was a really small bite and i i stayed mostly in washington square park and around campus and you know, um, you know, by my senior year, I was comfortable taking the subway up to the Met and you know going to see a Knicks game and doing stuff like that. So, you know, for me, it was a slow learning process to just absorb the New York City culture and and social aspects aspects of the of the city. But um, it's it's just an excitement. You know, um, there's always something new on campus for the students. There is a there is a really big student life experience, which I think is a, a pretty big misconception. I mean, we um, you know, have a very large student body, but then you also have your, your teammates. So Mm -hmm. I don't know that I could have gone to NYU if I, if I wasn't coming into kind of the sisterhood of a team that was already there and was going to, you know, kind of look out for you and, and make sure, you know, you were doing the right thing and, and had all your questions answered. But, um, it was, it was fun. I mean, I I had a lot of fun and I definitely maxed out my four years, (laughs) I think as a student athlete. So,
0: (laughs) Now, now during your time at, at NYU, obviously NYU is, is a great, great school, and it's a huge school. You have the people in the film program at Tisch who are going on to become actors and directors, and you have people in the Stern business program who are going on to Wall Street. Was there ever a moment during your undergraduate uh, time at NYU where you were kind of freaking out, like, what path am I going down? Because everyone starts talking about at the end of sophomore years. like, what are you doing after school? What are you doing after school? what were kind of your career thoughts or aspirations during that time in college?
1: Yeah, every day (laughs) (laughs) because everybody was saying that. And I think for a while, uh, not to say that I was embarrassed to say like, well, I think I want to coach basketball, but it's just not the thing that comes to mind as a, as a NYU student, you know, like your parents are investing in this education. I was an economics major. Um, You know, you have all these internship opportunities and, you know, then you get to the end of this career. And I just kept coming back to basketball, you know, every summer I work camps. I made a lot of connections. Um, I, I loved just engaging with young people. And, you know, at the end of my four years, I, I had to break the news to my dad. <laughs> he was he was a little bit taken back that I just was, you know, not to say foregoing that education, but using it in a different way. And. Um, You know, we have other people from NYU women's basketball that have gone into coaching. Um, Allie Jackson's up at Siena. Rachel Wodowski was at Duquesne for a while. So um, it's been like a fun group to be around in terms of coaches. And then also was, I think, just a unique kind of career turn to get into coaching from, you know, from a place like NYU.
0: So after graduating from from NYU, you go up to Utica College and you join the staff as an assistant coach uh, there for the women's program. Just Mm -hmm. What is it like, you know, you graduate college, you're a college player, a great college player, student-athlete, then the next year all of a sudden it's you're now the one giving the advice and giving the coaching instead of the one taking uh, coaching. Just what is that adjustment like from someone who was a very good college player and then immediately now it's like, hey, you're now the coach?
1: Thank you for your compliments on my college career. I'm feeling really <laughs> good about myself. <laughs> Um, you know, I think it's important to find a staff, especially when you first get started, that's supportive of younger coaches and, and them finding a voice because certainly I think I was very quiet and, and kind of just took a back seat when I first started and just kind of watched and tried to learn and absorb as much as I could about coaching and mentorship. Um, and it's, it's fun, you know, to, to sit on the other side and to sit in the office, you know, game planning and doing all that. It, I feel like every day as a, as a younger coach, it just opens your eyes to what coaching really is and what mentorship really is and, and all of that. So I, I mean, I, the second I started coaching, collegiately i knew that this is what i wanted to do and you know i think every year it's just about growth you know even now you just want to continue to grow and learn and be better for your student athletes be better for your staff i'm you know i try to do that with our staff now and and you know promote their ideas and and their voices and help them grow as well
0: now so you're at utica as an assistant coach at a lot of division one programs men's and women's uh teams there's like six or seven assistants, managers, video coordinators. <laughs> Everyone has a specific role based on where you are on the staff. Division three, obviously the staffs are a lot smaller, but the head coach has has their responsibilities. The lead assistant or the second assistant has, has their responsibilities. What were your responsibilities being an assistant coach at, at Utica?
1: You know, kind of a little bit of everything. I think I think the biggest thing was, you know, coming in. I think I initially started with, you know, well, you're a shooting guard, So why don't you start with that? That's something you're going to be comfortable with. And then just proving yourself, you know, um, proving what you're capable of. Probably I was given the easier scouts and then did a decent enough job to, you know, kind of get that, you know, internal promotion in a sense to the harder scouts. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I think it's just proving yourself and, and your capabilities and then you know, doing your best and doing professional work so that you're given more tasks, you know, that, that, I was the only assistant there. So I really had a hand in everything, which is a great way to start. You know, I think, um, you know, a lot of people look at the division one side of things and they think like, I want to get into coaching. So I'm going to go be a director of ops, Mm -hmm. you know, at a D one school versus I think in some capacities as a division three assistant, you're getting on court coaching, you're getting scouting, you're getting, you know, making sure Recruiting visits are going okay. You know, running camp. You know, doing film exchange. So there's right, just a right. lot that you kind of get a hand in, which really set a great foundation for myself.
0: Now, after three years at Utica, you make the jump to the Division One level at William and Mary. What was that jump like as as a coach going from Division Three to Division One? Because you know the famous line in Hoosiers is the court, you know, still the same size and the rims <laughs> are still. T- t- uh, 10 feet tall, but just what is that, that jump like as a coach in terms of responsibilities, in terms of practice time, just, just all the things about coaching at a, at a division one level.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was fun. You know, I, I had a connection with my college coach and the head coach at William & Mary. So again, I was just fortunate to have that connection. And, um, back then I had to mail my resume in (laughs) (laughs) and hope that they read it. And, had a great interview and just really felt a connection with the head coach there and, and knew that it was a right next step for me. I had actually not between college and my first job had not left New York state. So going to Virginia was, you know, just a, a growth opportunity for me as well. But, um, you know, the, the responsibilities were much more defined, you know, to your point earlier, you know, we had somebody who did X, Y, and Z and I came in and I was working with the post players and, you know, had a couple other very specific tasks um, but the season is longer. You know, you're you're doing a lot more encore activity because you could work year round with the players, and um, so you know that aspect of it was a little bit different. I think for a lot of Division One head coaches, sometimes the question is, well, can you recruit at this level? Mm-hmm. And you know, honestly, when you're at the Division Three level without scholarships, it's it's a hard task. You know, you're you're trying to find the student athletes that. Are really, you know, prioritizing the experience that your specific school can offer them, and at any point, if a if a scholarship swoops in, sometimes they they just take it. So, I did. Not, I was not concerned about that at all. I think it's actually a great way to make the jump um, because if you can sell an opportunity to somebody without a scholarship, then having a the scholarship seems to right. be a lot easier, you know.
0: And, and just speaking of, of selling, you were a guard in college, right? Correct. Yeah. So, you know, there's. You're coaching the post players. I know as, as a post player myself, sometimes when you see a guy who played point guard or something in, in college and just a super short guy, it's like, oh, great. What is he going to teach me about uh, drop steps and post moves and, and everything like that? How did you kind of gain the trust of the post players at William and Mary that I know what I'm doing. Listen to me and you guys are going to become really, really good.
1: Yeah, it's, you know, it's relationship building always, you know, I think they have to trust you off the court before you're going to get on the court and just motivate them to do something. So, you know, when, whenever you're hired for a new job, I think the most important thing is just connecting with your student athletes and, and you're right, you have to prove yourself. You have to go out there and know what you're talking about and um, be confident in the knowledge that you had. And like I said, fortunately from the job I was coming from, I had experience working with the posts and working with the guards. And um, so I felt like I could make an impact on, on either side there, but, you know, us as guards, we think we know every position. So yeah. we're, <laughs> <laughs> we're usually, you know, probably a little bit more confident than we should be, but you know, I made it work. And then, you know, obviously that led into a space at temple where, you know, they, they also were looking to somebody to help with the posts, and, and I, you know, kind of fluidly went into that position as well.
0: Yeah. So this kind of fits both your time at William & Mary and also at Temple. So after a bunch of very successful years at William & Mary, you go to Temple where, as you said, you're also still coaching the post players. But during your time at William & Mary and during your time at Temple, the game of basketball changed a lot, especially with post players, where we now see in 2020, there's, almost, there's very, very little post play now. And every post player who's over, at least in the men's game or in the women's game, anyone over like six feet, it's like, shoot threes, shoot threes. <laughs> how kind of, mm-hmm. how did your coaching evolve uh, the post players as kind of the game evolved and, and kind of the things that a lot of teams were asking their post players to do change too? How did you balance that with, hey, we still got to work on our post moves with also like, maybe we should take some threes. Yeah,
1: <laughs> everybody wants to shoot threes. We we want to shoot threes in our program all the time. So, uh, you know, Our head coach at Temple, you know, I think it was just more so understanding her vision for, you know, what we were going to be best at offensively, what we were going to be best at defensively, and then, you know taking that vision and implementing it with with the post players that we had. So she did an amazing job, you know, facilitating the offense to the strengths of our program. And, you know, we had a lot of really strong guard play. So a lot of the work we did with the post players was really more on the defensive side of the ball or step out. So you're right. I mean, it it has evolved. But, you know, I think it's more so at, at both of those levels for me as an assistant. It was just understanding, you know, the goals of our head coach and then doing my best to work on the skill set. And then also, you know, if we didn't trust our back to the basket play, you're right. It was, you know, well, let's develop and, and let's prove to the head coach that you can do this, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, I think sometimes you kind of do that on the side, um, while still furthering, you know, your head coach's agenda, you know, when you're in, in practice and things like that.
0: And speaking of just development, you know, I, I feel like so many times people see post play and they don't really understand, how much goes into it and just sometimes how much skill goes into it because they see a guy like Shaq in the men's game or, or, <laughs> or someone like Brittany Griner in the women's game who are so big, so physically dominant. You're like, of course you're dominant. Of course you're scoring every, every time. But just for any young, uh, any post players out there or any coaches who are looking t- uh, to try to help their post players get better, just what are some things that you would recommend or that, or that you would uh, coach the, the women at Temple or William Mary about how to improve their own post games?
1: It's guard or post for, you know, my philosophy is always to focus on the fundamentals, you know, positioning that's huge in the post, you know, you have people who can dominate if they're in the right positioning um, in the low block, you know, and and certainly footwork and and just the catch, you know, we we work all the time on catching, positioning, where your feet, reading the defense, um, and then having a go to move and a counter and just simplifying post play because I think like you said people are trying to expand their game but you know sometimes there is a lost art of just you know the simple ways of getting open and catching and and reading and scoring that can make a big difference in a game so you know for me always simple is better it's not about having 18 moves in the post it's Mm -hmm. you know just doing a few things really well um and focusing on the defensive side of the ball you know that's there there's a lot of tricks in the in the post that you can focus on to make catching difficult to make positioning difficult and things things of that matter so you know it both playing both sides of the ball and um you know like i said just just sticking to fundamentals that would be my biggest advice
0: so during your time at temple during your 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 stint there you passed a decade in experience as as an assistant coach you're coaching temple you're still as an assistant is there like a moment or kind of a mentality switch that goes off for either for you or just kind of just assistant coaches broadly where it's like where you kind of just feel like, "Hey, I feel like I'm ready to to move that one seat over and and become the head coach of my own program."
1: Yeah, you know, I think um, I think in some levels, you 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 feel probably ready or unready all the time, you know, (laughs) it's like, you think you can do it, but you kind of have that voice in the back of your head. Like, can I really do this? And, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm comfortable here. This is a great, a great position for me. You, You don't have that pressure in the same sense, I think as a head coach, but you also have, you know, that other voice in your head that's kind of like, let's go for it. And, and let's take on this challenge because you're, you know, you're competitive with yourself and, you know, you do think you can do it. So, you know, for me, making that jump was always about the right place. It wasn't about just, you know, I want to be a head coach and I don't care where it is. It was about, you know, being at a place that I really believed in and, and, you know, really thought I could thrive in myself professionally and also could provide a really great experience for student athletes So I was just really fortunate that <laughs> NYU was that place.
0: Yeah, so kind of walk me through uh, the, the, the timeline here from, from when you first found out that, the, that there was a job opening to when, to when you got the job and just what it means to you as an NYU alum to now be the coach at your alma mater.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was a pretty quick process. Uh, You know, when I found out that the job was open, I came up pretty quickly to interview and, and uh, the process went really quickly. And kind of next thing I knew I was driving home to, to tell my family, you know, first before it was officially announced, I was just really excited. I was living in Philly at the time and I was able to come back up to New York city and my family was, is all in upstate New York still. So Mm. You know, it was just a fun way to kind of tell them and and to jump back into the NYU culture. And um, like you said, I mean, it's for me, it was coming back to a place that, you know, to me, and it's just my pride in being an, an alum really offers this unmatched combination of this academic and athletic experience, but then you have New York city, you know, as your backyard and you're kind of like, you know, this will be fun to recruit to. And I've walked in the shoes of these, you know, these student athletes. So I can really talk to recruits about, and our student athletes about what it means to be an NYU student athlete and, you know, the pride in that and, and bringing the alumni back into the family and, and, you know, just bringing an excitement back to the program. So I just saw something really special in the opportunity. Um, you know, obviously the idea of winning championships is always a a fun thing to think about. And I knew it had been done. So I think for me, that competitive side was just excited about that challenge of, you know, can I be the next coach to kind of do this here? And, and really that's what we've been trying to build since I got here two years ago.
0: Yeah. So I think that what, one thing you mentioned about recruiting, I think recruiting at NYU and just that whole experience for all the teams, not just with basketball teams is one that's really, really unique and, is really interesting. so so I want to get your take on it you're obviously you said you have New York City in your backyard and New York City is you know I'm from I'm from here so I'm very biased but <laughs> the greatest city in in the world so so you're recruiting to New York but also New York is so well known as as just a place in a city that so many people kind of have these uh, preconceived notions or thoughts about what New York City is like right or wrong whether it's dated or not dated just about like what living in, in New York is like do you feel like you sometimes have to break down the stereotypes or just the thoughts that some potential recruits have when, when they come to campus and dealing with parents about like, Hey, is the city safe? Is, is there actual dorms? Like are they actually yeah. going to be taking the subway places? Just, just yeah. like c- can you kind of speak about just recruiting to New York city as a whole uh, for a little bit?
1: Yeah. It's a, it's probably for recruiting our biggest strength and our biggest weakness. You know, yeah. um, the, <laughs> the young people that we're talking to are so excited and, you know, and then there's also this, you know, initial, you know, pretty big concern like, oh my gosh, my daughter's going to be going to New York City. Um, and, and like I said, I think what's helpful for me, I, I grew up in a town with one blinking stoplight. So <laughs> I, I, can, I know those concerns. I lived those concerns. My dad had those concerns and, you know, I made it just fine. And so that I think is helpful for me to, to just kind of understand the complexity of, you know, trying to, trying to just kind of pitch this idea to, you know, to parents and to student athletes. But definitely the biggest misconception about NYU is that I think when people think NYU, they kind of picture like New York city and times square. Yep. And I tell people all the time, it's kind of like you're picturing rock and roll, but we're really more like jazz. You know, we're really like, we're in, we're, we're near Soho, you know, we're around Washington square park. It's a, it's a really chill vibe. It's, it's exciting and there's an electricity to it, but it's also kind of low key and has like this just low key vibe to it too. So, um, whenever recruits come on campus, that's the number one takeaway that we always get is wow, I just did not, <laughs> I didn't know that it was going to be like this. So, you know, I think for us the biggest challenge typically in recruiting is just to get student athletes to campus, and and once they're there, you know, we're, we do just fine. I, I think you know the resources we have and things like that speak for themselves, but. Um, you know, it's, it's just a unique place to recruit to, certainly for all the reasons you said. And, and now with Brooklyn kind of growing and we have a Brooklyn campus growing, you know, there's, there's just a lot of opportunity here and a lot of different types of people that we're recruiting.
0: One, 100%, I think, I think that's really interesting because Washington Square Park, I don't know if it was when you were there, but my parents always say back in the early 90s and 80s, it was not a place you want to be. And now it's super, super desirable. And as you said, really nice, super low key and just a really fun uh, just a place to live in the city.
1: Yeah, I, I've I've done my fair share of trying to be an extra, you know, on TV <laughs> shows being filmed in the park. <laughs> but yeah, I mean there, you know, there's artists, there's music, there's performers and then, you know, it's just full of NYU students. So the, the the most exciting time of year I think for us as a staff is when the students are back just because the park is just full of of students. And it's just, it feels like that's our quad, you know, Washington Square Park. So that's kind of a, that's just kind of a neat thing.
0: For sure. So another New York City based question, but you know, I went to school at Wesley and We're in Middletown, Connecticut. It's a nice town, but there's only so many things you can do as a team off campus, only so many places you can go. New York City is kind of this unlimited options place where sometimes you just feel overwhelmed by all the things you could do. What are some, if you've done any like team building trips or just events uh, in in the city, like a Broadway show or a Knicks game or a baseball game, kind of just to try to work on team building and camaraderie off campus in, in New York City?
1: Yeah, you know, that's we have we have a really close knit team, so we actually don't have to facilitate a whole lot of like, you know, forced fun. I mean, they they love to just hang out. And like you said, there's such a diversity of things to do. You know, they will go to a Broadway show. They the Nets now with Katie and Kyrie. I know the whole team is pumped about, you know, for Mm -hmm. the next couple of years. Um, certainly, the Knicks and you know the New York Liberty season doesn't quite coincide with the you know fall and spring semesters, but um, there's just a lot comedy shows. You know, um, our students are involved in a lot of different things, whether it's social activism or you know doing a, a monologue, you know doing um, slam poetry. I mean, just just anything. So there's you know they love to be supportive of each other, but even you know we have one student athlete on our team who has a food blog and she goes to all these different restaurants in new york city and you know blogs about their food so it, it could be it could be just about anything um you know they're they're definitely have a diversity of interests within the team so i think that makes for a lot of fun outings for them
0: yeah i i think there was some stat in like the paper either last year or a couple years ago that was like there's thousands and thousands of restaurants in New York City that you could theoretically eat out and try a new restaurant every <laughs> night in the city and you would never get to all the restaurants.
1: Yeah, it's it's amazing. I mean, and they find fun, you know, hole-in-the-wall places mm-hmm. they love. We have a a cookie dough spot right off of Washington Square Park called Dough, which yep, is like an ice cream shop just for <laughs> just for cookie dough. So, they find the good spots. They they are usually the ones letting us know, uh-huh. um, which is which is fun.
0: So, Another challenge that all Division three schools and, and, and a lot of just basketball you know colleges deal with is winter break, where you guys start in a typical year. You start October 15th, you're practicing for a few weeks, games start November, you're getting six weeks in, you feel like you're on a roll, you're improving, hopefully getting better. Then all of a sudden, bam, it's finals at a school like NYU, no joke, no matter what program you're in, winter break, right. and you're off. And it's kind of this... Forced pause in, in the season. Yeah. How do you deal with that as a as as just a coach? Where is this mandatory break halfway through the season? Where you're where a lot where, where a lot of times like last year, you guys were kind of on a roll.
1: Yeah, you know, I love it. <laughs> I'm probably not many coaches would probably say that. Um, I just I think our our team is able to really look at the season in sort of three distinct different ways and the first is like preseason and you know non-conference play and they're just learning how to um you know incorporate time management with now having like a full-blown season and practice and you know strength training and you know yoga and just all these different things we try to do and you know we we do we, we completely shut things down when exams start because we want them to just focus on you know doing well in their finals so we're done very early we were done i think this year somewhere around december 10th and we didn't pick up again until december 28th but i'll tell you the- the group we had was when they come back, they're so excited to be back, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think for me, that's the thing that I love. Like they're not, they're not like, Oh my goodness, I only was home for four days. Like I, I need a break. They were just, they were so excited to be back together. You know, they were ready to get into the UA season. And so for us, we have a really long J term um we have our our student athletes typically don't take class in that time frame. So they're kinda like these semi pro basketball players that just mm-hmm. get to, you know, play basketball and then they actually have free time to experience New York City. Yeah. Um in bigger chunks. And we're in UA play, which is fun. You know, we're flying to Chicago and, and St. Louis and Atlanta and they're not stressed as much about classes going on and things like that and then that last chunk is they get back into classes in February and you know it's that last push UAA play and hopefully you're you're going into March you know with your eyes on making the NCAA tournament
0: and I think one of the things about NYU that that makes that period so exciting and as you said why uh the women in your team are so excited to be back is that just from my experience everyone goes back but when you go to back these campuses like for us at Wesleyan it was just the winter athletes and nobody else and it was eerily quiet the dorms are really really empty it was definitely like it was at the beginning it could feel really isolating now you're with your team and it's great it's a lot of team building and it, and it turns out to be a lot of fun but it is mm-hmm. very isolating but for you guys you're back <laughs> it's like new york at the holidays it's bustling it's like it's, right. it's just normal new york city like they don't care that it's nyu j term
1: exactly yeah they're going up to Rockefeller Center getting their picture in front of the tree yep. a lot of them you know their families will visit New York at that time especially for the a homestand for UA weekend so yeah it's um it's fun I mean like you said it, it's definitely not quiet um but they the team the team bonding and the team building I think for the UAA season is really special for our league and you know I think a lot of the coaches feel that way the trips are unique for division three and mm um, you know, you, like I said, for our students, they're not in class at that time. And that just kind of gives a nice balance to, you know, the the competitive season for them.
0: So now you're a head coach, you're entering your third year. Do you have any coaching idols or mentors where you have practice, you come home and it's like, Oh yes, UConn's playing. I'm going to watch coach Gino or, (laughs) or the NBA you love, you know, whether it's, Billy Donovan, even though he just got fired, or you know, just <laughs> just just people like that, where coaching aisles are mentors, where you really try to uh, steal because all great coaches steal, steal kind of what they're doing and, and just learn from them.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I, I certainly love UConn women's basketball. You know, like I said, when I was at Temple under Tanya Cardoza, she was an assistant at UConn for a long time. So, you know, that was, you know, I did a lot of learning under her. That was kind of that UConn way. And, and so that was exciting. But I love um, watching Stanford. A friend of mine is a head coach at UNC. And so I, you know, tuned in to watch them as much as I could. Um, but, you know, obviously in season, you know, this time frame right now with the WNBA and NBA event being on has mm-hmm. been fantastic, especially yeah. with not a lot else going on. I think I've never absorbed more pro basketball and that's just a different lens. And, you know, it's been fun to watch those teams as well. The, the trailblazers, we, we play a lot of small ball. So, mm. you know, just watching different actions and, and things like that and trying to, you know, pick up from those teams has been fun.
0: Yeah. So th- that, so that kind of brings me to my next question there, coach, which is, How do you watch basketball? Can you sit down and just watch a game just for the fun of it? Or are you always just, with all your knowledge, your basketball IQ, and just being a coach, always picking out, oh, they're playing this ball string coverage. Maybe they should try this. Or, oh, I could steal (laughs) that play. Oh, Brad Stevens, what a play. I'm going to steal that. How how do you sit down and and watch basketball?
1: Well, my staff will tell you that I... (laughs) I steal too many plays because I come (laughs) to practice just about every day with a new quick hitter that I just want to see. I love to end practice with, you know, two or three quick hitters just to see what works and, you know, just run them once and see if it would be a a great timeout play for us. But, um, you know, I'm a fan of the game, so I think, you know, you're always critical watching it, just, you know, you're critiquing you know, what would I do here? Or, you know, why is it, why are they doing that? But, you know, I, I'm a fan first and foremost, just of the game. So I, I love to watch it. Honestly, just even my nephew playing, mm-hmm. you know, rec league basketball, I love to watch that too. So that's awesome. Um, Yeah. So, you know, in whatever capacity it's, it's the sport I'm fondest of for sure.
0: So coming into NYU 2018, 2019 successful first season, I think if I remember correctly, it was 17 wins, you come yeah, back come back the next year that summer fall did you kind of have a feeling or just have a hunch that 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 group that, that you were bringing back could could make a run uh deep into march or, or into march now that you are incorporating really like your first recruiting class
1: you know i did i we have a really special group of young people and i i really i saw the resilience the year before when just about everybody we had when I stepped into the situation, my first year, the graduating class previously graduated like 90% of all production. So wow. even when I was trying to watch film of kind of like, okay, well, you know, like you, like you alluded to, you don't have, pre, you know, you don't have any practices in September, you don't have any workouts. So it was really a blank slate of what do we really have here? You know, and, and we, our staff had a hard time even watching film to see, what we had because so much production had graduated from the previous class. Um, And so I think in some ways players that like Janine coffee is a great example, her freshman year when, when we were not on staff, she scored 37 points and her sophomore year, uh, she had 37 points in her last game of that season. So (laughs) it was, you know, it was a real success story. We, we really felt confident in the players we had coming back along with that group of freshmen we had coming in this year. And, you know, I think we knew it would be a fun year. It was just how to push the players the right way and how to bring them together the right way to, to really make that run. Cause as you know, it's, you know, it takes all those things coinciding. It's not just about talent. You know, it's not just about, we have a really fun team and they, they get along, you know, you need, you know, that resilience, you need, you need luck with injuries, you know, you need, um, you know, you need freshmen to step up and then you need, when the freshmen kind of teeter out towards the end of the year, you need other, you know, you need other people to step up. So, you know, I think we knew we could make a run. And as the UA season came into play, um, we weren't really hitting our mark. I think we were like somewhat 500 and we made it through the UA once. And we said, all right, our goal is to go undefeated for you know round two of UA play. And we we went 6-1, and one. so that that really set us up for the NCAA tournament nicely. I mean, the league prepares you. Um, it, I think the, the question is, can you get through the, the gauntlet of the league? You know, that's, that's the question of trying to make it to March if you're in the UAA.
0: Right. Now, you guys went through the gauntlet. You had 20 wins going to the NCAA tournament. And then it was like the world sort of had other plans that first week uh, of the NCAA tournament you know, we started to see the initial tremors almost of what the coronavirus could do here in the U.S. When was the first time you heard of the word coronavirus? And just during that week, were there any uh, plans or discussions about potential precautions you guys could be making that weekend at Bowdoin?
1: Yeah, you know, NYU, I think was very proactive and just those discussions. And so the first, I, I mean, we, there were, you know, you were in New York city, there were kind of whispers of things and and people started walking around with masks, but you were kind of like, what's really going on? You Mm -hmm. know, I think it was just an ignorance of the situation. And, um, and then there were protocols put in place the week we were leaving for Bowdoin right after we made the NCAA tournament, you know, we got the bid, um, there were, pro- there were protocols put in place that, um, you know, were if, if you have any of these symptoms, you can't travel. So we actually, we actually arrived in, in Bowdoin without one of our starters due to those, wow you know, protocols. So we, you know, we went through that weekend without one of our players and, and that was, you know, that was just a, a hit in a sense on, you know, those precautions. Obviously we were supportive of them, but, you know, you were just kind of like, man, we finally made the tournament and we're, (laughs) we're going into this, like, you know, person down. So, um, and, and then when we got to Bowdoin, even, I think we were talking to some of the site managers and, you know, talking about what was happening. I don't know if it was Johns Hopkins or, you know, some other schools that were saying, you know, fans can't come in. And so you were, Mm -hmm. it was just the beginnings of all of that. Obviously it escalated, you know, very quickly with shutting things down after that, but you know, we played actually up until the very last day that any team yep. played. So I guess in some ways, I guess in some ways we're fortunate to have a little bit of closure on our season. Um, I didn't envy those teams that were kind of sitting, you know, at other sites ready to, you know, preparing for the sweet 16, but um, you know, but it was, it was definitely fun to at least get a taste of the NCAA tournament for the group yeah. that we have returning this year.
0: Yeah. And, and you guys win the first round, I believe you beat Emmanuel, if I remember correctly. And then in the second round you played host Bowden. I had Coach mm-hmm. Scheibels on my podcast back, way back in in April. She's a great, mm-hmm. great coach. Unbelievable program. <laughs> the,
1: yeah.
0: way the, the way the way the way the D three tournament works, the way for anyone who doesn't listen, you, there's no off days between games. It's Friday, Saturday. You beat Correct. Emmanuel yeah. on Friday. You know, Bowden was going to win, right? You probably didn't do any scout for the team Bowden was playing. How do you get ready for a team like Bowden, who is coming off back to back trips to the national championship game with less than 24 hours.
1: Yeah, you're right. I mean, we definitely went into that weekend, um, you know, scouting a little bit heavier with Bowdoin. Uh, we did obviously have an eye on the other team, but Mm -hmm. you know, first and foremost, it was to get that win against Emmanuel. They had actually knocked me out my senior year or junior year, I should say of the NCAA tournament. So I had a personal, (laughs) (laughs) personal revenge there, but, um, you know, yeah, you're right about Bowdoin. I mean, what a high bar they've set. It was fun to be in that environment with their fans. And, you know, I think for us, it was about, we focused on ourselves all year. You know, we certainly scout and, you know, defensively, we we make adjustments for teams, but we are, we were very, at that point, we were really clicking offensively. So it was about trying to come out of the gates and and really just throw the first punch and play our up-tempo style and see if we could get them back on their heels a little bit, which we did. Um, We just kind of ran into a buzzsaw there and, and, uh, you know, but it was, it was great to see, okay, you know, that's, that's the level, you know, and I think we felt like that was very reachable for us. So in, in a lot of ways, it was a great experience for our players and, um, you know, like I said, it was an exciting environment, you know, she does a great job with her program, both recruiting and, you know, development. So, you know, I think that was a perfect team for us to play at that time. And, and, in my career here as a head coach and, and to just hopefully grow from that experience.
0: So after a tough loss to Bowdoin, the world shuts down, you know, with the virus, <laughs> all, all your players are now back home all around the country. You're now working from home, just like everyone else during, yeah. during that time, not just this year. But also just in, in normal years where, hey, the season the season's always going to end by April, right? Because the national championship in Division Three is always in March. So mm-hmm. from April to October 15th when, when you start practice, what are some things that, that you try to do in your offseason to try to improve and get better? Because for your players, it's easy. If someone wants to become a better shooter, go sh- shoot a lot, right? But mm-hmm. how do you become better at coaching when with the NCAA rules it's not like you can go coach – 400 games this this summer at, at a bunch of camps.
1: Yeah, you know, the WBCA does a great job with the resources available for programming. So that's typically, typically kind of my first stop is to just, you know, get engaged with, with what they're doing. And, and they've done a phenomenal job with you know, during these quote unquote COVID times of even providing more and more content, mentorship, um, you know, just all of those things for, for coaches. So that's been a fantastic resource, but honestly, I think the biggest way that I try to get better as a coach is recruiting, you know, mm. because, um, you know, we, we are a global brand. We are a national brand, uh, in terms of university. So we stretch really wide and, and, you know, reach really far for the, the best student-athletes that we can find for our program and spend an, a lot of time just trying to find the right fit for the current team that we have. We have a great team culture. Um, so that's really the the priority for me, you know, as soon as the season ends and, and really kind of throughout is recruiting that next NYU, you know, student-athlete because that that is the lifeblood of our program.
0: Now, as you mentioned, NYU is... Now, this is sort of the more macro level uh, as we get to the end here. NYU is at the forefront of so many things, forefront of medicine, business, kind of just the forefront of all sports right now is analytics. Do you try to incorporate analytics at all in the way that you coach and and make decisions with your team and and program?
1: Yeah, we definitely do. You know, it's a a value resource. Um, I have an analytical brain, so... Mm -hmm. You know, I think in some ways I'm kind of doing that on my own. And then we will circle back a lot of times after games looking at, you know, just efficiency models of lineups of, you know, you know, where we're getting shots and things of that nature. But I also, I also, you know, sometimes de-emphasize it just because there's so many different things that go into analytics. Like you can look at a lineup, but, you know, your starters are playing against a certain Group of people on the other team, and then there are substitutions, and then you know you might have a player break out, and it, it could be based on you know they were in zone, they were in man you know. So mm-hmm. it, it, I think it's kind of a give and take. I think it's you know you do as much as you can with it, but ultimately you know you need players that are going to step out on the court and just be fearless and right. have fun and and compete. And you know, for us, it's like don't worry about missing a shot, don't worry about you know it's next play and and just be in the moment. So in, in some ways that does not include analytics, but it certainly drives a lot of the, the decisions that we make as a staff.
0: Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Because I, I just feel like there's got to be at least one, probably dozens of Daryl Morey, Billy Bean wannabes at NYU who would die at the chance of helping you with analytical models and being the, the chief analytic coordinator of, of NYU w- women's basketball.
1: Yeah, we had, a, we had somebody, um, reach out to me who wanted to get involved this year strictly with analytics, which I thought was really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just a, just a basketball fan. And I think, um, you know, just said, I have a lot of respect for the women's game and, and for your program. So, you know, I think we're always welcoming, welcoming to those opportunities. You know, anybody that wants to provide you information, I think it's just, you know, you know how it is at the end of the game. I think that's where sometimes analytics can, you know, can be a little bit overthought. Like you Mm. need, you need that gut check. You need that player that is going to just go in and make a play and they might not be your best shooter, but they just, they might have, you know, the it factor of like, it's game time. This is my shot. This is my moment, you know? So I, I just think there's a balance of, of those two things.
0: Now, we've kind of talked a bunch during this podcast just about coaches' meetings. You guys meet to go over game plans. You meet to go over recruiting plans, all this stuff. Players are known to have meetings of their own. A lot of players-only meetings in, in the history of basketball have turned out to be great, have turned out to be not so great. In the players-only meetings I've been in, they're give and take. You, you never know what you're going to expect. When, as a coach, when, when you hear from your captains, hey, we're going to have a players-only meeting, what do you think of just pl- of that and just players only meetings in, in general?
1: I got to tell you in my time here, I have not heard that mm. once, which is shocking. And I think that's, I think that's the thing that's most surprised me in coming back here. Um, is just the maturity of the student athletes we have in our program. And, I'm sure that will, you know, get a lot of eye rolls for anybody listening, but I, I've just been really fortunate. Um, I agree with you. I think in some ways those can be really helpful. Um, you know, you want your players to have a voice and, you know, in other ways, you know, obviously as a coach, sometimes you want to sit in on, on those experiences for them. But I think for us, we are a very open door staff. So we, we try to connect with our our players as much as we can so that, they aren't afraid to come to us with any issue or, you know, um, we have an all-female staff. We're proud of that. You know, Mm -hmm. I think we connect with our players on a lot of different levels and each one of us kind of connects with different kids as well. So um, I definitely don't have negative thoughts on it. If they chose to do that, I would be, you know, all for it. I think for them, a lot of times it's just finding their own voice. Um, You know, one of the biggest things I've noticed with, 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 you know, the manner of this off season has been social activism. And I think in some ways those player only meetings have been them trying to come up with a way to use their platforms without the coaches giving them direction on how to use their platforms. So I right. think that's been a really cool way that they've kind of, you know, utilize their own voices and, and just try to grow as young people.
0: 100%, 100%. And so you mentioned not only do you guys have a 100% female coaching staff, how do you feel like that helps you, connect and recruit with uh and just recruit players and and connect with the 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 current ones in your program uh just because you know as a male college athlete i've only ever been coached in basketball by other men is it Mm -hmm. is it something but but you see men coaching women's sports all the time is it something different for female athletes and, and for female coaches to coach the same just uh the same gender, because that's something that it just in men's sports, it seems like that's just a given right now, even though there's a lot nah. of efforts to try to break that down with Becky Hammond. She's now, according to Woj, uh, in real contention for the Indiana Pacers job, which would be an unbelievable hire. She's a great basketball awesome. mind. But just yeah. as we are continuing to try to break down those barriers, just what is it like as a female college athlete or just as a female coach to, to coach uh, female college athletes?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I wanna I don't wanna discredit any men that are mm. coaching women. I think, you know, even in our league we have we have phenomenal coaches and, and a lot of guys are, are doing just an unbelievable job, you know, leading women's teams. But, you know, I think the platform for women in, in basketball is growing, you know, like you alluded to Becky Hammond. And so, you know, for me, you know, I, I worked on a lot of staff that had a lot of women and I just saw that mentorship and that connection. That was a little bit different when the, you know, the players feel like there's an understanding there, like for, for our staff, you know, we have a, we have a coach who played division one, you know, you have me, I played division three, we have another assistant who played division Mm two. And, you know, so we have a diversity of even just student athlete experience. And, um, but just also being a female college student athlete is, you know, different than being a male, (laughs) uh, so, you know, so I think in some ways it's just being able to relate to them. I think you kind of come to the table and they probably, in some ways maybe trust you a little bit sooner you know um and so you're able to kind of develop those relationships and there's a trust to kind of come to us with any issue and and not really feel like we won't understand or there's an embarrassment there or it's something that they don't think they can really talk to us to about so you know again i think we always approach our coaching from a place of mentorship and so in that in that sense i think it's helpful but you know for me as a head coach it was important to hire women just because I wanted them to connect with our student athletes, but I mm-hmm. also wanted to provide that platform for, for female coaches as yep. well. You know, I think we have, you know, two assistants on our staff right now that could both be head coaches in their own right. And, you know, our, our student athletes benefit tremendously from, from both of them. So.
0: 100%, 100%. So speaking of just a guy who does, has done unbelievable things in the women's game, Gino Ariyama. You guys, you you had the opportunity to coach against him while while you were at Temple in those battles yeah. against Yukon as we as this is the last question here before we get to the fun ones. You're <laughs> preparing would. you're preparing for a Yukon team. And look, we can be honest. The odds were stacked <laughs> heavily against you. But how do you go through that week of prep knowing that, hey, even if we play a perfect basketball game, we may still lose.
1: Gosh, I mean, to play UConn for me was such a, uh, I mean, a delight in a sense professionally because you're you're able to scout and prep, like you said, for the best team in the country, and mm-hmm. they're in your conference. You're going to play them twice. Um, you know, you get them at their place. It's a a sold out, you know, ten thousand seat arena, yep. and even at home, there was a huge uh, Philly contingency for Gino because he's you know from Philly. So. Yep. it it was fun. You know, um, the, the players are more focused. They know they're going to be on the national scene, whether it's the score scrolling across ESPN or (laughs) the game or the game being on ESPN. So they, they are excited about it. I would say it kind of felt every time we played them, it kind of felt like an NCAA tournament week a little bit, you know, like you're playing, you're, you're, you're able to measure up against the best. And so, you know, Tanya always did a great job, our head coach at temple of, you know, just kind of focusing on our program, not on UConn. It mm-hmm. was about how could, how would we show ourselves on the biggest stage? You know, how would we measure up? And you can either back down to them and, and just kind of say, well, this is a throwaway game, or you can, you know, try to get better and, and see how close you can come. You're right. I mean, you're usually your vision is not, let's go beat them. It's let's see what we can do here. So yeah. Um, you know, I definitely learned a lot in that, you know, prepping for Brianna Stewart and, (laughs) you know, just trying to think of different ways to even defend them. You know, that was always the, the biggest thing is like, what schemes can we throw at them to just slow them down a little bit because they were a scoring machine, um, year in and year out, but. Um, you know, he set a high bar. I, I'm sure the American Conference is both excited and sad to see them. To see them, they got to be excited. You know, I yeah. mean, I think you know they brought so much notoriety to the league, so I think that was a huge plus. But you know, the hard part is no, nobody really set their expectations ever to win the league. So yeah. it, you know, you're kind of like, let's play for second. And so <laughs> I think in some ways it does open up that that fight for a championship again for that league, which is great.
0: Yeah, parity is key in all sports at all levels, and the. Perhaps the most, perhaps the most impressive stat about UConn women's basketball since Geno's been there, of all the impressive stats they've been, is they didn't lose a game when they were in the the American Athletic Conference. It's amazing. They didn't lose a single conference game, and they were in that conference for five or six seasons. It's it's unbelievable. Coach. Yeah, they had a
1: buzzer beater yeah. against Tulane. That yep. was, a, that was, that was as close thing. as it I came. I think they won by a point. So they, they almost had one. Shout out to Tulane. But they <laughs> <laughs> didn't quite get there.
0: <laughs> so, Coach, really appreciate all the time. Before we get to the end here, we're going to do five rapid-fire questions in the podcast.
1: Oh, boy. Okay.
0: All right. So, number one, what's your favorite drill as a coach?
1: Anything competitive. Probably a uh, three-stops drill. Three stops in a row. Um, Kill drill. Okay. We play three three on three get yeah. on get off yeah that's our players have the most
0: fun with that uaa nicknamed the airplane league you kind of mentioned it earlier but you fly to chicago to play you chicago st louis for wash u boston atlanta what is if you've had one yet a horror travel uaa story hmm
1: that's a great question um I, we have not had one. Our, it was funny. Our first, my first season back, our men's and women's teams were not on the same flight for a couple of trips and our men's flight kept getting canceled. And (laughs) we were like, we're here. We're going to take your practice time. (laughs) We're going to go eat. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I I, I can't pick a one. We've been fortunate. Knock on wood. Watch. I'm going to, I'm going to text you, you know, angry when we're (laughs) somewhere, not able to fly out.
0: (laughs) Now, also another thing about New York, New York City, everyone knows about it, is the traffic and just getting around can be a nightmare at some times. Uh, you are a resident in New York City now. All your players are. Have you guys had to deal with any, yourself or any of your players, of those kind of nightmare you're trying to go on a map one mile in New York but takes two-hour <laughs> stories?
1: Yes. I. Uh, we practiced um, last year. We were we were taking off for a UA road trip. We were trying to squeeze a practice in based around the, the player's class schedule. So we kind of did like this hour and 15 minute thing and quickly showered and jumped on the bus and got stuck in traffic on our way to the airport. And so that, so that actually goes back to your previous question, I guess, both um, we almost, Miss our flight but fortunately we did not um, we just we just got stuck in monster traffic trying to get to the airport and we were we were crawling and fortunately we had a veteran bus driver that just <laughs> I think at one point he took the shoulder and, and got, <laughs> I said we have to make this flight and and he got us there so that actually See, I think of horror stories for travel as like when we're on the road, but, yeah. but I guess they've been mostly like trying to get out.
0: Well, that's a, to the airport. That's always hard. Is that, Now, is this JFK or LaGuardia?
1: It doesn't matter.
0: <laughs> yeah, they're both bad. I think
1: that at that point we were going to um, LaGuardia um, and we'll use Newark sometimes. That's actually usually the easiest, but yeah, JFK or LaGuardia, they can just be a bear. So, um, we were crawling and I was like, I I could not look at my phone. I couldn't look at what time (laughs) it was, (laughs) but we made it. We made it. So, um, my, my favorite resource I have, I live in Brooklyn is I have a fold-up bike. So that is my, that is my go-to for any (laughs) type of transportation with around the city.
0: Yeah. The the LaGuardia, it's I just don't like landing there because it's right on the water. It's like you feel like once you hit the runway, if you look out the window, it's just water. And you're like, are we going right? to stop? Are or we going to keep stop? going? Totally. <laughs> totally. Uh, number four, <laughs> do you have any pet peeves as a coach?
1: Oh, um Yeah, probably just, you know, people not talking. We pride ourselves on being the the loudest team. We try to, we have a pool outside of our practice gym. We try to make sure that the people in the pool can hear us when we're practicing. So (laughs) it's just when people aren't talking, um, I'm lucky I haven't had to really coach effort too much. But if if I did, it would definitely be laziness as well. But we don't really run into that.
0: And last question here. If you could change one rule about college basketball, what would you change?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Um, I probably have two. One would be I would love to add a six foul. I love that in the NBA. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have a very aggressive team. So, <laughs> you know, I think I, to me, it's like you want your play. You want all players to just be able to be out on the floor. Um, right. Right. So that would be one. And. You know, some aspects of the review process, I would love to see a little bit different, just where, you know, just where rest can, you know, when and where they and what calls they can review. Sometimes I think as coaches, you know, it's gone the wrong way, but it's an unreviewable play. So, um, but yeah, those would be the two.
0: Interesting. Well, at Tish, you guys have enough cameras to right. <laughs> put in all the replay. Well, Coach, so, yeah. really, really appreciate all the time. As always, on the Double Double, we give the last word to our guests. If anything, you want to shout out to the people of the Washington Square Park NYU uh, community.
1: No, I'm just proud of everybody at NYU right now for trying to make this work. Everybody's doing the best they can, so if anybody is listening, just shout out to them. It's it's um, trying times, I think, for everybody, but um, it's great to see a community come together and be so supportive of you know trying to have... A semblance of, you know, a fall semester, and we're just very hopeful that our student athletes can showcase, you know, what they can do, you know, come this January. And so, hopefully, once we get through all this, we will have a product that will be exciting to watch, and you know, people that will be exciting to watch out on the out on the court, um, you know, this this January and and going on hopefully to March.
0: Yes, well, well, coach, really appreciate all the time, and thank you for joining me. Wishing you the best of luck for a season happening, and if and when it does, uh, a long uh, trip into, into March and the Torrent for, for the Lady Violets.
1: Well, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for knowing that we are the Lady Violets. We get bobcats sometimes, and so you're, <laughs> you're spot on. But thanks for all the work you do with your podcast. It's been really enjoyable to listen to. And I encourage anybody to, if you're listening to this, go back and listen to the other ones because there's a lot of other coaches that have, have a lot more intelligent things to say than I do. <laughs>
0: <laughs> really appreciate it, Coach. Have a good one.
1: Thanks so much. You too.
0: Alright, so thank big thank you to Coach Barber for taking the time to join me today. I hope you guys all enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Now on to the week one of the NFL season. It is a little weird that it feels like the NFL is just happening this year, where they they really haven't had any type of controversy or any major storylines this summer about the coronavirus. They've kind of just have gone about their business, put in safety protocols that are seemingly working really well. And the part that everyone is a little worried about is there are some fans who will be allowed in the stadium depending on the city they're in. For instance, last night between the Texans and the Chiefs, the kickoff game, the Chiefs allowed 25% capacity, which not... Everyone understands percentages, but when you have an eighty five thousand seat stadium like the Chiefs do, twenty five percent is seventeen thousand people. So, so they so so the Chiefs had seventeen thousand people at their stadium last night. That was something that we're going to have to watch going forward for the NFL season of home field advantage. Who's allowing fans? Who's not allowing fans? And then also just we're not in a bubble. Teams are traveling, as we've seen with baseball, that can present some some challenges. So we'll see how it all goes. Obviously, the coronavirus is uh, the biggest concern that all these teams and players are facing. We've had multiple players drop out of the season due to the coronavirus. So we'll see how all that goes. It's gonna be obviously a week to week type thing that every team and every city is going to have to to deal with. And then on top of that is the NFL players during the summer uh since George Floyd's murder back in uh late late May and the early June protests and then obviously Jacob Blake earlier this month that caused the massive NBA protest and walkout and protests across all sports. They haven't been act for playing. After Jacob Blake, a few teams decided not to practice that day. But this is a real chance to see obviously the national anthem, you know, the quote unquote national anthem protest that started with Colin Kaepernick that were never about the national anthem but were always about Police brutality and protesting police brutality and racial injustice in America. That started in the NFL. That started with Colin Kaepernick back in 2016. So we saw last night the Texas and Chiefs did a moment of unity, and it sounded like the fans in the stands were booing, which was, in my opinion, pretty disgraceful. Uh, But we had guys who kneeled for the national anthem. We had uh, shows, uh, signals of of unity. I thought it was a pretty good message, but as we've seen, it's kind of like approved protest in a way. The NFL put end racism in the end zone. We'll see what what happens, uh, and we'll see what the NFL players decide to do. This was just what two teams decided to do last night. Every team is playing either on Sunday or on Monday night football. We'll see what each team decides to do. For instance, the Miami Dolphins, led by a Poly Prep alumni, which is the same high school I went, Brian Flores they have announced and have decided that they will not be on the field for the national anthem that they're going to stay in the locker room. So, we'll see what each team tries to do in their protest of police brutality and racial injustice in the United States. So, we'll see how that co- how that evolves ongoing because as we saw in the NF- in in the NBA, you know, George Floyd was not an, an isolated incident. Jacob Blake is not an isolated incident. If and when there's another police brutality incident, in the coming weeks and in the coming months or coming years, we'll now get a chance to see if the NFL is in season, what they plan to do, whether or not they'll walk out or not play or what type of protests that they'll take. So that will also be really interesting to, to see. But also, just to talk about the stuff going on the field, it was kind of weird having football last night. It kind of feels weird just kind of in the in the world we're living in with the coronavirus and Mass protests that people just you know we played a football game and it still feels kind of weird you're watching baseball, basketball that all this is going on when so much other stuff that's so much bigger than the sport that's happening that that's all going on in the background, but uh that that we're still playing our sports. It feels a little weird, but you know if if that's what the league and if that's what the players want to do, all for it so last night we had the chiefs and the Texans an exciting game. the Texans scored first. And then the Chiefs, as they always do, rally. They scored 31 straight points, uh, and they win the game 34 to 20. Pat Mahomes looked fantastic. Sean Watson looked pretty good, missing, obviously, their star wide receiver, DeAndre Hopkins, who got traded to the Arizona Cardinals in the offseason. But, you know, they it was it was a good football game. There was no preseason this year due to the coronavirus, and it actually looked pretty good for a bunch of guys who haven't played since because obviously these were two very good teams last year since January and February. But this week in the NFL season, there are a few games that I want to highlight that if you're going to spend time watching football this weekend, there'll be some games that I think will be better better than, than the other. So the first game is the Green Bay Packers versus the Minnesota Vikings, a divisional rivalry. This is a game being played in Minneapolis. The Vikings are favored by two and a half points. But the Packers were 13-3 last year. They have Aaron Rodgers. Big offseason for them. A big offseason where the Packers drafted their seemingly air apparent replacement to Aaron Rodgers in Jordan Love, the quarterback from Utah State. So this is a chance I'm expecting Aaron Rodgers to come out pissed off at the world, his team, for bailing on him and coming out and trying to prove that I'm still the guy. I got plenty of years left, and you guys made a mistake drafting Jordan Love. So that's what I'm expecting. The Vikings also made it to the second round of the playoffs last year. They made it to the divisional round, knocking off the Saints. Uh, excuse me. Sorry. They made the conference championship game last year where they lost to the San Francisco 49ers. They are being led by Kirk Cousins, who is not a believer in mass, which I think is just st- stupid, but that's a issue for another podcast but they're a good football team good defense great running back it should be a good divisional battle to start off the nfl season that game is at one o'clock on Fox. uh so i would check out that game another game one o'clock start is the dolphins versus the patriots cbs this is another quote-unquote pissed off game or kind of a prove-it game the patriots are favored by six and a half the dolphins had one of the best off seasons. They had a great draft. Even though they drafted to attack tag of Iola, they will still be starting Ryan Fitzmagic, Fitzpatrick at quarterback. They were one of the best coach teams last year, even with a huge talent, de- uh, talent deficit. It'll be interesting to see how the Dolphins look this year, but all eyes should be on the Patriots in this one. They obviously had the breakup between Belichick and Brady back in March, and the Patriots signed Cam Newton Former MVP coming off a major shoulder injury to a minimum contract. I've done some reading. I've done some research. Some football people a lot smarter than me say this is the perfect marriage. If you could have drawn up a perfect scheme for what the Patriots like to do and for what Cam Newton excels at, whether it's quick passing schemes or just Josh McDaniels being super creative, having now a quarterback, you could do super creative things, running, throwing, getting out of the pocket, this Patriots team is going to be really good. It drives me nuts. I'm going to be really upset this year that it's going to be another Patriots year with hey, have a chance to be really, really, really good. But if Cam Newton is healthy, watch out because not only is Belichick trying to prove that hey, it was me the last twenty years and that Tom Brady was great, but it was also me, and that was a huge part of the six championships. It wasn't just the fact that we had the best quarterback. And Cam Newton's also pissed off. I'm ready to prove it because not only did the Panthers give up, up give up on him last year, but no team wanted to sign him, and it was only the Patriots. Only the Patriots were willing to to pay him to pl- come play quarterback for them as a starter. And he's a former MVP, made it to the Super Bowl in 2015, where he lost to just a, an elite Denver Broncos defense. And he's ready to—he's, He he's, I'm sure, motivated and so competitive, and he's ready to— to prove that he is still one of the major best top quarterbacks in the NFL. So I would watch that one. One o'clock, CBS, uh, Pat's Dolphins. Pat's favored by six and a half points. The other game, now four o'clock games, 425. Bucks Saints, Fox, Saints favored by three and a half points. This is Tom Brady's first game with Tampa Bay. Against New Orleans, Sean Payton, Drew Brees. Again, the theme of this week is prove it, pissed off games, mad at the world. This is Tom Brady's first game in in, in Tampa Bay. He's right now ready to prove it's not just the New England system, it's not Belichick. I am this good. And also, I'm 42, 43 years old. I can still play at a high level at this position. If I was going to bet on this game, I would bet on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Uh, Not because I think that they are a better team than the Saints overall, not not because I think that they'll have a better season than the Saints, but I think Tom Brady has spent all off season training, getting ready for this one game, this one moment to make that you go make one first impression to say I'm still great. I don't need Bill Belichick. I don't need Josh McDaniels. I don't need the New England system and the Patriot way. I can win and I can dominate anywhere and everywhere. And he'll be playing in a dome week one. And the Saints like to score points. And I think Brady's going to come out and try to prove, hey, we can outscore you. And I can still outscore you with these weapons I have now. With Chris Godwin, Mike Evans, so much better. OJ Howard, so much better. Leonard Fournette, so much better than the weapons he had when he was back in New England the last two seasons. I'll watch that one. And then also just the Saints, one of the best teams in football last year. Lawson an upset to the Vikings in the playoffs. I think they have a chance to go deep this year, but also they could be a team that regresses. It's key to see Drew Brees, 39 years old. How does he look? Whole off-season off, season off not, as many practice, not, not as many preseason games. How does he look? Because uh, he kind of tailed off towards the end of last season. Not everyone can be Brady and excel in their early 40s. How does Drew Brees look? Because this team goes as far as Drew Brees goes. So I will be watching that one. And then... The eight twenty game Sunday night, Dallas Cowboys, Los Angeles Rams. This will be a chance to see how do the Dallas Cowboys look? How does America's team look? They decided not to pay Dak Prescott this offseason. Will they will he come out and say, This is I deserve the money. I'm gonna have a huge game. Because the Rams on the flip side have went from being one of the most deepest, most diverse rosters to being really, really top-heavy in a lot of ways. Not as much depth, but superstars and highly paid stars across the field. So I'm really interested to see this one and how it goes. The Rams are also opening a brand-new stadium. I kind of would like to see how it looks. Even if it's empty, I still think it could look pretty cool. And also, it may look even weird and cool, a brand-new stadium with all the bells and whistles, if no one's in there. So I think that would be a, a pretty cool game. And then also just to have Prescott, Golf, both of these teams, high, high expectations that you know that they want to get off to a good 1-0 start because their fan bases can and, and will overreact if they start slowly. So I'm looking forward to, to that one. So those are my four games on Sunday to watch. You don't really need to watch any, any of the Monday night games, but those are the four games to watch. I'll all be watching them. I'll be looking forward to breaking them down next week on the podcast. Uh, And so I really appreciate everyone listening. And that'll do it for this episode of The Double Double. Uh, As always, if you like this podcast, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. Five stars would be much, much appreciated. You can also follow us on Twitter at dbl underscore dbl podcast. We'll be back next week. Until then, take care and make it a great day.